I thought I'd start this morning by reading you an epic Latin poem. I'm going to read it in English, obviously. My Latin is very rusty, and by rusty I mean I don't know it. But um, this is an epic Latin poem written by Virgil somewhere between 19 and 29 B.C. See if you can figure out the story. I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to figure it out definitely by the time I get to the end, but here we go. After many years had slipped by, the leaders of the Greeks, opposed by the fates and damaged by the war, build a horse of mountainous size through Pallas's divine art and weave planks of fur over its ribs. They pretend it's a votive offering. This rumor spreads. They secretly hide a picked body of men chosen by lot there and in the dark body filling the belly and the huge cavernous insides with armed warriors. Then Lacoon rushes down eagerly from the heights of the citadel to confront them all, a large crowd with him, and he shouts from afar off, O unhappy citizens, what madness! Do you think the enemy has sailed away? Or do you think that any Greek's gift is free of treachery? Is that Ulysses' reputation? Either there are Greeks in hiding, concealed by the wood, or it's been built as a machine to use against our walls, or spy on our homes, or fall on the city from above, or it hides some other trick. Trojans, don't trust this horse. Whatever it is, I'm afraid of Greeks, even those bearing gifts. This, of course, is the epic Latin uh, poem famous in uh, famous from Greek mythology on the Trojan horse. And I mention that because the more I talk with people who are not from church, who are not church, I had a great convo with another guy on the street the other day who was playing a guitar and I sat down and talked to him for a bit. And the more that I connect with people that aren't from the world of church, the more they think about, the more I realize a lot of people have this idea that Christianity is like a Trojan horse. That this grace of Christ is like a Trojan horse. Oh yeah, it sounds great. The grace of God and forgiveness of sins. But then once you get inside, well, that's when, you know, that, that's when the bait and switch happens. That's what a lot of people have a perception of church. And I got to say that they're getting that from somewhere. And part of it is they're getting up because they have their own misconceptions about Christian faith, which are misguided and misled. But the other part of that is that they've experienced Christians They've experienced a church who themselves really have come to understand and believe that the Christian faith and the grace of Christ is like a Trojan horse. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to talk about the grace of God and we're going to talk about the grace of Christ, but once you get into the church, okay, we're done with the grace and now, it, now the burden is now on you to somehow be something, do something, build something so that God is happy with you. And this morning as we go to our text, which is Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 11 through 22. We're going to pick up Paul's story. Uh, it's, not even a, it's not a story, but Paul's uh, account of the grace of God toward you to reveal that the grace of God, the grace of Christ, is not a Trojan horse. It's not that God's grace got you in, and now it's your work that's going to complete what God began. That's not the story of our uh, salvation or of Christian faith. And we come to the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles were in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, which is made in, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, making peace, and might reconcile to both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and he preached to those who were near. For through him, Christ Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Now, before I get into this text, remember the beautiful context, that in chapter 1, there's a wave of grace that's coming toward you. You didn't initiate it. You didn't have anything to do with it. It's just God's great mercy coming toward you and me, and he saves us. And it's so good, Paul says, you can't even conceive of it. I have to pray for you so that God gives you a revelation of how good this is, because it's that revelation of the Spirit, of what Christ has done, that actually begins to transform our hearts. So Paul says, it's so good, i got to pray that you get it. And then from there, we move into this. He's now further explaining how beautiful this is. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that the grace of Christ goes further than we would, and it unites more deeply than we could, because Christ builds his church. God's grace goes further than you would, and it unites deeper than you could because Christ is building his church. This is really good news. We're going to unpack this. We're going to ask three questions of the text. The first question is, well, how has the grace gone further than we would go? And the second question is, well, then, how does God's grace unite more deeply than we would? And then thirdly, how is Christ actually building the church? So as we look at this, in verse 13, Paul comes out and he starts using this language. And for those of you that are newer to church, this Jew and Gentile language is weird. But really, essentially, what it means is everybody who's not was not a, of Jewish nationality it was called a Gentile. So you and I are Gentiles, non-Jews. And Paul starts out by saying, not only were all of the non-Jews born dead in their sin in Ephesus, right, all the city of Greeks, but not only were they born dead, but they were born nowhere close to God's saving grace in ordinances, because if you were a little Jewish kid, you at least grew up with, an, with going to the synagogue and hear, hearing about God's grace and hearing about how God saved your people from slavery and hearing all of the stories of God's great love and great saving grace. So you would have, as a little Jewish kid, grown up close to that saving grace, that institution of saving grace. But the Gentiles, they were nowhere near. That's why Paul's like, you weren't even close. You, you were far off. You and I in Kitchener-Waterloo here in 2016 were way far off. We're so far off from the saving grace, but yet God, through Christ, saved us. So Paul starts out by saying, uh, saying this, and Paul's basically saying, remember the distance God went to save you. Because that's going to go a long way in you relating to others who seem a long way off from God's grace, so that you can have a lot of love and compassion for them and not comparison. 
for them. And so Paul gives these three metaphors for how to understand uh, our, you know, ourselves in the church, and we just read them. He calls us God's people, he calls us God's household, and he calls us God's temple. And it's significant because when Paul is saying to a bunch of Greeks, you're God's people, you're God's family, I mean, that's really significant language because to them, they, I mean, they were just, they grew up their whole lives feeling like you're on the outside. For you and I that are here today in, in KW Redeemer, we were on the outside. But God's saving grace came toward us and saved us. And so this imagery is, is actually amazing because this, uh, it speaks about being a family and about this continuing relationship and this continuing intimacy. And then Paul says in the, uh, the third metaphor is the temple. And that's a huge deal because think about it. You're a Greek. You're not allowed to go to, the, to go to the inner court of the temple. Your whole entire life there's been an us and them, us and them, us and them. And then Paul goes in and he says to the Greeks... Actually, God's building you into a temple. So not only, not only are you so far away from this grace that you've grown, your whole, grown up your whole life like you're just not good enough and you're on the outside of the grace, but now God says the very temple you weren't even allowed to go to, God's going to actually make you a temple. That temple you weren't allowed to go to because God dwelled over there and you belonged over here because you're, you know, you're a dirty sinner and, and God's presence was over here. Now God says now he's going to make you the temple and he's going to actually dwell with you. And so there's all of this uh, amazing imagery that Paul, that Paul is actually giving that people would have been like, whoa, this is amazing. Now, Christ fulfilled the temple in every way. And, in, and when you uh, look at the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, you see how Christ fulfilled everything in absolutely every detail, that he's greater than the temple and he's greater than the priest. The priest would, would go to the, the there was a, uh, a laver at the temple and he would wash himself in, of his own sin so he could atone for the sin for the people. But Christ atoned for this, your sin and my sin, and he didn't need to wash himself because he was clean. And the same way that that laver, the water in the laver, washed the sins away, we have a new covenant in baptism, and just as the water washes dirt, washes our sin away. And then in the temple, there was a, an altar of burnt offering where the priest would go and offer an offering. But Christ, the greater high priest, he offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice, as the ultimate offering. So he replaced the need for that in the old uh, temple worship as well. There was a table of showbread in the old temple. Where they would go and they would and they would uh, the priest would take the bread and go into the holy of holies and he would eat the bread in the presence of God. That was the old the old way. You know, I'm getting my life and my nourishment in the presence of God as he ate the bread. But Christ is the bread of life, and he replaced he absolutely replaced the need for it. There was a lamp stand of the temple, and the lamp stand gave light inside the temple. But of course, Christ is the light of the world. Christ calls you and I the salt and light of the earth, and Christ has replaced the need for that lamp stand. Christ is absolutely. Uh, fulfilled uh, the purpose of that in the temple. There was an altar of incense in the temple. The priests would, would pray these prayers, and they would burn incense. And the incense would rise up, and it was like symbolic of their prayers rising to heaven. But we now, full of the Holy Spirit, we pray, we're connected to God by the Spirit, and Christ has fulfilled uh, the, the role of that priest with the prayers going up to heaven, because Christ is your high priest praying for you. At the right hand of the Father, praying and making intercession for you. So Christ retired all of that. There, of course, was the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And it had the tablets of stone, the law. Christ fulfilled the law. It had a little jar with some manna in there that, that caused for the uh, Israelites to live in the desert. Christ sustains us. He's the bread of life. Right? It had in there Aaron's rod that budded, life coming from death. But Christ rose from dead. He is the ultimate picture of resurrection, Christ has retired it. He's retired it all. And then there, of course, there was the mercy seat where they sprinkled the blood of uh, 
lambs and goats on the mercy seat, but Christ shed his own blood. So when Paul says to a bunch of Greeks, Christ's going to make you know you the temple, it's a pretty big deal for them. I'm not saying all this just to kind of be academic this morning and kind of show you these parallels. I'm getting you to see that what Paul was actually saying back there was, you guys were nowhere even close to this grace. So far away. But this grace went way further than we would because we, we would never have gone as far as Christ did. For people who are so unlike us in grace to, to save them, we just wouldn't do it. But yet Christ did it. It's amazing. You had to go to the temple because that's where you were cared for. But then the, Paul is saying, no, you're now going to be the temple and God is caring for you wherever you are, whatever it is that you're going through. He's with you, loving you. And so it's absolutely amazing. He says, I'm making you a temple. Why is this significant? Well, what if we say, well, that's amazing. Jesus fulfilled everything. So I'm good now. I don't need the people sitting around me. I don't need to come here on Sunday morning and worship. I can just be an individual spiritualist, right? So this week, I'm on the street. I'm talking with this guy. He's playing his guitar. And I'm talking to him, and we're having this conversation. And so, and so it gets around to me asking him where he learned to play and that kind of thing. I said, you know, I used to play the piano, play by ear. And the conversation's kind of going along. And I said, listen, have you ever been to church? Do you have a church background or anything like that? I'm just curious. So a lot of guys here are musicians. You know, maybe they played in churches. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I used to go to church. Uh, and then he holds up his guitar and he goes, but this is my church. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, bruh? This is my church. And I said to him, I said, I get it. I get exactly why you're saying this is your church. Because today, when we don't revel in the beauty of the grace of Christ, and I don't know all of his story, but it's very easy to be like, hey, look, I don't actually need a church because it's just full of humans that are going to disappoint me anyways. And I'm just going to love someone, care someone. They're just going to let me down anyhow. So I may as well just be an individual spiritualist. And the guitar can be my church. Walking in the woods can be my church. Staying at home with a latte, listening to preachers that are just infinitely better than I am, can be your church. Listening to worship that's going to be infinitely better than anything we can produce can be your church. Is that really what? But you see, that's not what God has been up to from the beginning. It's not his plan. It's not his gig. You can't, if you say, well, yeah, no, yeah I don't know if I really, I think I can. No, you can't. Because this temple imagery has been around since the garden. The garden was the first temple, and then there was the tabernacle, the temporary temple, and then there was Solomon's temple, and then in the book of Revelation, you've got this apocalyptic imagery of the new Jerusalem coming down, which is, you know, it's, it's an apocalyptic picture, but saying that God's making another temple. What's this all about? From the beginning, God wants to dwell with his family. Family. Together. It's what he's been up to from the beginning. That's his plan. That's what he's up to. I don't get to just be individualistic. And so Paul is now saying this radical thing because he's inviting the Greeks in. Come on! And this is freaking people out, I gotta tell you. So, he, so the grace of Christ went way further than we would because Paul is saying, Ephesus, you were way far off and God saved you. And church, there's a lot of people in your life that they just seem way far off. Don't write them off. God is, God, saving people is his jam. He's been doing it for a long time. And so this is the beauty of how his grace has gone a lot further than, than we would ever go. You know, I, I was at a conference a couple of years ago sitting at a fundraiser for the Gideons, the guys that print the Bibles and put them around the world. And, and, uh, and the guy was the keynote speaker. And he was in prison for, uh, for like assault and attempted murder and 
and he was it was about I mean, the guy was you know he had been around and uh, anyways he's saved he loves jesus he's now a chaplain he goes and he preaches the gospel in these prisons and i'm like i'm asking him about his story you know what he said i'm like how did you how did you come to faith in christ man He's like, well, I was in the, in the prison, and they gave me a, a, I got asked, you know, you got nothing to do. I guess I'll read the Bible, or maybe I'll roll it into cigarettes and smoke it, one of the two. And uh, so he gets this Bible, and he reads, of all things, for us as Christians, we would see this would be an interesting place to come to faith in Christ. He reads the book of Revelation. So he's reading the book of Revelation, and he, he comes to faith in Christ. And that's a really apocalyptic, wild book with all kinds of, like, dragons and fire and beasts and horrors of Babylon. And, I mean, like, what, how do you... I mean, most Christians don't even read Revelation because it's just a, apocalyptic confusion. You need somebody to guide you through that stuff because that's... You can't just pick up a 2,000-year-old piece of apocalyptic literature and be like, oh, yeah, I totally understand this. I'm, I'm totally tracking this with my North American linear mind. This makes absolute... Actually, I've got a chart. Here's where we are. We're at the fourth trumpet. No, you're not. You're not at the fourth trumpet. You haven't figured, you have, you're, you're not even close. And this guy reads Revelation, and he comes to faith in Christ. God's grace goes way further than we would ever go. You wouldn't go and save a guy like that who had done what he had done and been where he'd been. And you wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do it. God would do it. Has done it, can do, can do it, is doing it, will do it again. His grace went way further than we would go. And now his grace goes way deeper than we would go. And this is like really, really significant. Because Ephesus, again, this big Greek diverse city, lots of diverse thought, very much like us here in KW Redeemer, in KW with a lot of diverse thought. There's a unity now that goes way deeper than we could actually pull off, even in this room. The diversity in this room of backgrounds and cultures and ethnicity and, and, and ideas and ways of thinking and personalities and traits and... I mean, you know, there's just incredible diversity in this room. And there's a unity that's going to be deeper, that's way deeper than we would, would go with unity. I'll, I'll explain it. In verse 11, it talks about, Paul, Paul says, you know, uh, talks about the circumcision. And then he, he, he actually takes a theological shot across the bow, because he says, oh, and he describes it, he says, made with hands. We read it as North Americans in 2016, and we're like, okay, circumcision weighed with hands. But I promise you, a first century um, you know, Jew would have read that and went, what? Circumcision weighed with hands? You're just saying this is, a, this is now like a formality, a man-made, made with hands. Why is Paul doing that? He's going, Christ retired this entire thing. Christ retired all of the formality. There's no more significance. Why? You know, there was first century Greeks that weren't allowed to come to some of the synagogues. I was doing some research on this, and one of the historians, his name is Richard Lenski, was writing about it, saying there would be Greek Greeks who came to faith in God, and they're like, that's great, but you're not coming with me to church because you're Greek. That was still going on, first century. So they wanted to keep the circumcision because they wanted to be like, there's a, still a distinction. I'm still better than you. You me! Do you see that? Do you see the difference? Like, that's... They were like, can we still keep that? Can we still keep a little bit of, I'm better than you? I come from a, a different background than you. I come from a different socioeconomic place than you. I come from a different culture than you. I have a different level of education than you do. I have a different level of biblical knowledge than you do. I, have, I mean, we could go on all day. See, at first, as moderns, we say, this whole fighting over the circumcision, this is so, I mean, why is this important and relevant? Why do we have to talk about it? Because, church, we have ways of modernizing the quote-unquote circumcision. 
Of course, the form of circumcision is not relevant, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what it implies is totally relevant. We wouldn't unite so deeply based on these other kind of ways of distinguishing ourselves from others. Be like, well, I'm going to have coffee with this person, but not them. I can hang with them, but not them. And I'm not advocating that everybody in the church is all best friends and we're all besties and, and, and we all you know, hold, hold the skipping rope and we go everywhere. Unity is not uniformity. What I'm saying is, if there's something in us that's like, I'm still, kind, you know what, I can't associate with that person at Redeemer because I'm this and they're that. I'm from here and they're from there. I've done these things and they've done those things. I got news for you. Uh, get over your circumcision. Because there's a unity that's just far deeper than any of these other kind of, uh, the walls of hostility, these kinds of things that Paul describes that are, that we're dividing. And it's a big deal. In verse um, 13 and 14, where Paul is blowing out the Mosaic law and the legal system, he, he talks about how Christ had abolished these ordinances. It's a big deal because I was uh, reading um, Josephus, who in his Antiquities book number uh, 15, he's writing about this, and he's a historian. He's just writing about it. And this is what he said. There's a stone in the temple that had an inscription on it that said, if you were a Greek and you were in the outer court and you went into the inner court, you were at risk of the death penalty. That's how separate they wanted things, right? So on the one hand, we can go, whoa, that's crazy. Oh my gosh, that's just horrible. Who could be so unloving? And then at the end of our service, we finish the doxology. And I'm like, okay, let's go and have coffee on the other side of the gym. And then you're like, no. <laughs> I might know you guys don't like me anymore there's nobody's la- everybody's looking at me like what I can't believe you just said that now I said it because there's ways that today we can be like I don't know because if I because what if this kind of a person or that kind of a person you know what if I say how are you doing and then what they and they had a horrible week do I really want to hear that I mean I've had a hard week myself I'm not sure I want to hear about that you know or you see that you understand this is what we do I'm not making this up theoretically, like, I've heard people do this. Me. This is just like, this is what I do. And so Paul's like, there's a unity that's deeper that Christ gives, that transcends all of these kind of social patterns and differences that says, I'm here and you're there. That's why in verse 15, it's, he uses the phrase that Christ made one new man in place of the two. No more Jew, no more Gentile. No more us and them. Right? No more Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Catechism, no catechism. It's gone. Christ. This is what he does. He's like, there's no more us and them. There's no more two men. This is one. And it's beautiful and it's deep and it's rich and it allows us to love each other with this great comparison where those, those Greeks and those Jews in that first century, wow. Talk about not having anything in common. Right? But how many times in my life have I been like, well, I don't know if I can talk to that person. I don't really have anything in common. Of course. And again, I'm not advocating that everybody becomes best friends. I'm saying that there's a richness to this unity where it's like, you know what? There's like a genuine love that it's deeper than you and I could do it. And I'm not burdening you like the end, where this sermon is going, by the way, for those of you that are wor- worried and now wishing you put on more deodorant this morning. The sermon is not going to a place of like, and so there you have it, church. Get out there and like, however much you're loving each other, love each other more. That's no, because where this is going is Christ is building. Christ is doing this. We are all in a journey of Christ doing this beautiful reforming work of breaking down the walls of hostility even in our own hearts toward him and, and, and even further to, to this city that he loves and that he cares about so deeply. And so how did he do it? He did it through the cross. 
And that's important. It's important that Jesus died on a cross and not wasn't stoned or pushed off a cliff. Some people ask me, and it's a great question, they're like, did he have to die on a cross or could he have just died another way? No, he had to die on a cross because the law in Deuteronomy 21 said that whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. Christ became the curse. The good news about him becoming the curse means there's no more curse. So when you sin, and you do, and when I sin, and I do, we don't come back under the curse. Because there is no curse. Now, historically speaking, the church would say, okay, well, Paul, don't say that. That's a little too bold, because the church is going to be like, great, I can just live however I want, do whatever I want. You don't even get it, because that's not even what grace produces. So you boldly proclaim, there's no more curse. Because now, well, okay, from that kind of freedom, I can love my neighbor. Because as long as I think rolling around in the back of my mind that there, there's, there's still some curse reserved for my disobedience, then I'm going to run around to love and serve you, but it's all self-serving. Because in the back of my mind, I'm doing it for me. Because I'm afraid of this reserved curse re- reservoir that's there for my disobedience. No. It says, he killed the hostility. That's what Paul said. Killed the hostility. What hostility? The hostility between God and you because you were a sinner, but now you're in Christ and you're no longer. You're united. It's done. So the grace went further than you'd go because you wouldn't go that far. You wouldn't go that far to say, like, no, it's done and finished, and no matter, no matter what, what you do next, your poor performance next, I'm committed to you in covenant through Christ, and I'm loving you. You and I don't have that. We don't have that kind of capacity for grace that God does. So he went further, and he goes absolutely deeper. And so the good news of it is that's why he says to the Greeks, he says, you're, you're family, you're in, you're not strangers. In verse 19, he's like, you're not strangers, you're not sojourners, you're family, you're in. It's a big deal. Again, back then, uh, that sojourner, that stranger, that alien, that language, what you would do is you had to, you'd pay a tax to be able to stay where you were. So you're a sojourner, so they're like, okay, we know you're, you, we know you're not from here, so you just got to keep paying this tax to be able to stay here. And again, if you think the Christian faith and grace in Christ is a Trojan horse, that's how you'll think about faith. Okay, well, Christ's grace got me in, but I have to keep paying this obedience tax so that I'm okay with God. I have to keep paying this love my neighbor tax. No. No. What the grace of Christ is doing in you is actually propelling this, because this is where the letter is going. Paul doesn't say all of this so he can say, okay, so Ephesus, do you follow me? Now, get out there and reform yourselves. It's not possible. The grace that's saved is the grace that's reforming. And so this is the beauty of it, and this is where it's, where it's headed. And so how is Christ building his church as we kind of close with this thought? How is he doing it? Well, in verse 16, he kind of gives us the reason. And it's that God is the one doing the reconciling. God is building something. God is up to something. As North Americans, we often ask the wrong question in re- regards to this. Here's how we ask it. What's God's plan for my life? It actually seems like a great question. And I guess I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to overcompensate by saying that's a horrible question because there's merit to that question. But it's not the biggest question. Because what the scriptures reveal is not that the Bible's already like, what's God's plan for my life? It, the, the question is actually, what's God's plan? Because my life is fitting into a pretty big plan. And it seems to say, I'm saying seems, it says he's reconciling, he's drawing, he's building, he's doing it. Now, I'm not an observer, and you're not an observer in God's plan, 
but we're also not driving God's plan. We've actually been graciously invited into this beautiful thing of seeing what he's doing and wanting very much to be participants in God's plan of what he's building and of what he's doing. So the grammar is actually really key when you're reading the Bible, really key. Because what it says is that we are the object of the reconciling. We're not doing the reconciling. God's doing the reconciling. We're on the receiving end of the, of the reconciling. And that's really, really great news. So, you know, th- this, is the, this, is the, this is the beautiful picture. So if I was to say, you know, KW Redeemer, it's all God. You know, it's none of me and none of you. None of us that came together to plant a church. Those of you that gave your time or your money. I mean, no, it's not. I mean, no, it's all God, all God. That's kind of disingenuous. Because God's the one doing the building. God's the one that's propelled our hearts. God's the one that's caused for us to desire to plant the church to his glory. Um, so it is, it, so it, um, in one sense, it is all God. Because it's something he's building. But it would be disingenuous to be like, you know, we're, we're just kind of like these mindless robots and God's doing this thing. That's ridiculous, right? That's fatalism. But, we, but the church is not so much guilty, uh, my view of modern North American church is not so much guilty of saying, it's all God, as much as it is overinflating our importance. Overinflating that it's like, well, if it wasn't for us, I mean, if it wasn't for me, where would you all be this Sunday morning? I'll tell you where you'd be. You'd be on a journey of God lovingly saving you, drawing you to grace in a hundred other directions, because... He doesn't need Paul Dunk to do anything. He doesn't need anything. But he's graciously invited Paul Dunk and electrified Paul Dunk's hearts and all of your hearts, and so here we are. So it's not, where would we be if it wasn't for you and your time and your gifts and those that are singing and those that are giving finances and the preacher. and the, We can overinflate our importance. God is doing this beautiful thing. He's inviting us in, and Christ is building his church, which is good news, because that means it's resting on his very capable, preeminent shoulders, not yours and and not mine. The other reason why this is so so absolutely significant is because he says that it's the church is being built on the apostles and the prophets, the foundation, the cornerstone being Christ. Now, when Ephesus got this letter, because there's modern ideas about this, well, who are the apostles and who are prophets, and what's what's prophetic and what's apostolic? Let's just get right back down to this real clear here. When Ephesus got the letter and they read the word apostles, who were they thinking about? Not, not church planters. They would think about 12 guys that walked with Jesus and Paul. That's apostolic authority. And when they read the word prophet, who are they thinking about? They weren't thinking about people in churches who had a prophetic gift, and I'm talking 1 Corinthians 12, prophetic gift, where that prophetic gift is, how do I, how do I illuminate in your life right here, right now, in this moment, a beautiful truth about Jesus that's going to really serve you and encourage you and love you? That's prophetic, Right? Um, but that's not who they would think. Ephesus didn't get the letter and go, oh yeah, they probably mean Bob. Bob seems to be pretty prophetic. No. They're thinking the, apo- the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And the church rests on a prophetic word, and that word's name is Jesus. And Revelations uh, you know, chapter 19, verse 10 says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if I say I've got a prophetic word for you, and then I proceed to talk about things that aren't Jesus... It's not a prophetic word. It's, it's good encouragement. We're, we're coming alongside people. You can find all kinds of language for that. But it's not prophetic. Because the church isn't built on that. And it says specifically here that the church is built on the foundation with Christ being the cornerstone. And here's the beauty of the cornerstone as I close. That cornerstone, uh, 
you know, it, it, what's, what's actually really super interesting in the Greek, this big, huge, massive, fancy word, agrogonieu lithos, which means the angle of the, the angle of the stone. So the angle of the cornerstone at the very corner, that angle determines all the other angles in the entire building. And so if Christ is our cornerstone, and he's the one building something, then he's going to start to determine all the other angles in our life. How I relate to you, how you relate to me, how you relate to your uh, friends at school, your children, your spouses, the kind of decisions that you make in business and don't make, the kind of way you are as an employee and you aren't, the, the words that we choose to speak and we don't. The, this is the trajectory of the letter. Christ is the cornerstone, and by his grace he saved us, and by his grace he's determining all the angles now. So where the letter is going, with well, what all those angles look like, Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another's burdens and love, putting off greed, sen- you know, abandoning sensuality, speaking truth, handling anger, doing honest work, abandoning slander, bitterness, forgiving, being tenderhearted, walking in love, sexual purity, being thankful, love and respect in marriage, children obeying parents, integrity for the employers and the employees, and putting on the love of Christ. That's where this whole letter is going. That's where we're headed over the next 12 weeks. So imagine now, I'm not, again, I'm not putting a burden on you like, did you hear that list, church? Get out there and be more of that. Jesus is doing something in you, and you are becoming more of that. And you're going to want more of that. And think of the kind of community it, we would be if we were operating in more of that. And think of the blessing that the church is to the city when there are more and more people in the city that are enjoying more of that. Because the letter to Ephesus wasn't just to one church. If there was a letter that said, to the church in Kitchener-Waterloo, we would be narcissistic to think it was addressed to Redeemer. We're not the only church in Waterloo. See, this letter to Ephesus is about what God, this big thing God is doing. And there's a big thing God is doing in KW, and there's a beautiful thing that he's doing here with us, and there's a beautiful thing he's doing in you. And this is the glory of grace that goes further than we would and unites deeper than we could because Christ is building his church. Let's pray.